New Israel foundations are established. So uh, we're going to be looking today at foundations. Let me pray. Well, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you are a God who speaks. Please help me to speak, speaking the very words of God, and please encourage us in our faith in you and in your word. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, spiritual foundations. I, uh, my mum's 94 now, and uh, she lives over at Inverloch, and I uh, take her for, or have in the past taken her for a drive. We go down uh, to um, uh, Cape Patterson, and uh, there's a little concrete ramp that goes down into the sea. We actually drive down onto that ramp, stop just before the ocean. And um, looking out at the ocean, I was talk talking to mum, who's not a believer, and I say, said to her, Mum, uh, it says in the Bible that uh, there is eternal life. And she's normally not this quick, but uh, you know, she's, she's in the moment each day and you, she's good at conversation. But her instant response was, it ain't necessarily so. She was quoting from a song back in the 70s. It ain't necessarily so. And it goes, the things that you're liable to read in the Bible ain't necessarily so. And uh, we're here today to see that it is necessarily so, as you will see. So we, I'm going to see how this is very important for this uh, little group of people, God's uh, Jesus' chosen people, this foundation as they begin this new chapter. Because they've just left um, Jesus. Jesus has just ascended. And they've moved back into Jerusalem, gone into the upper room. And there they are. Now, something about a, a few things about a foundation. I've built a couple of houses, and um, foundations take a while to build. In this particular one I'm in here, we've got concrete trenches, and then you put Rio in that concrete, and you spend a lot of time getting that good, solid foundation so that whatever you build on it, it doesn't fall down. Jesus used that in one of his parables. And then there's the, um, the, the concept of, the, of a tree. Uh, the foundations that a tree has. It gets its roots down into the, in, into the ground. And uh, that we know recently those trees that didn't make it because their roots weren't uh, well and truly um, firmly grabbing a hold of the ground. And once again, it's used in the Bible in Psalm 1. The person who uh, is like a tree planted by streams of water, that we get our foundation is to get our roots down so that we become stable and steadfast. I was reading uh, just during the week, there's a little, um, in Psalm 130, verse 5, it says, I wait for the Lord, my soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than the watchman for the morning. It may more than watch for the morning. We wait for God on the basis of his word. That's very important for us to grasp. We trust God because of what he has said. And of course, the enemy, um, right back in Psalm, in, in Genesis chapter 3, what did he attack? He said to Eve, has God said? To get our foundations solid, we need to know with absolute confidence that God has said. And there are some things God's given us 
to help us to know that what he says is absolutely trustworthy. And that's in this text today. So we're looking today at the, the foundations of the new Israel, this little group of Jesus followers. Luke wants Theophilus, who he wrote it to, to see how the church starts. And the first thing you see is people in verse 12 to 14. Individuals. Individual people are important, just like you guys are all important to each other. And people at the church I go to are important to me. Individuals are important. We're not just a mass of people. God has chosen to put together these particular individuals. And we know quite a bit about them, don't we? Because he's already told, Luke's already told us in his first letter quite a bit about them. So they've got, they've got some history. And just, uh, so we've got the 11 given by name. And we've also got these, uh, the extra ones that are mentioned are Mary, Jesus' mother, and his brothers. Which uh, you can imagine them looking across, the, the little group looking across at Mary and the brothers thinking, boy, these guys grew up. This one gave birth to Jesus. These guys grew up with him. And uh, initially they, well, actually the brothers and some of them, they were, weren't convinced about Jesus, but now they, they're believers. So just looking at it, those individuals within the group would be an encouragement to their faith, wouldn't it? They could see, hey, even his brothers believed him. <clears throat> Excuse me. So uh, you have people. People gathered together. Next, you see their actions. They, uh, number one, they're obedient, aren't they? They go back to uh, back back to Jerusalem, upstairs, and uh, they are meeting together, just as and waiting, just as Jesus told them to do. Now. Um, one of the things they also did, they, they, they did, did, did some things. Let's have a look at their actions. They're, they're united and they're committed. And in particular, they're praying together, aren't they? Now, they're not just going through spiritual routines. Prayer is actually relating to God. They were expressing their dependence on God together as a unity. They were praying together as they waited. But they've got to, as they meet together, Peter notices and points out that there is a foundational issue that they have to deal with in verse 15 to 20. I'll read it. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Peter gets up and is a leader, isn't he? A group like that, as it starts, has to have some leadership. And Peter is the spokesman. Other thing, too, is we know a bit about Peter, don't we? Um, was he a squeaky clean uh, leader? Or did he have had, he had weaknesses? He had weaknesses, didn't he? We see it right from the start that Jesus, in building his church, is using broken vessels, vessels that um, 
are not perfect, but that's okay. He's, Jesus is a gracious God, and Jesus has had grace with Peter and has given him this role to, as, in his leadership. The next thing you'll notice that Luke mentions the number 120 of them being together. And uh, that's important as because, first of all, we've got 11, and then we now we've got 120. And you can see through the rest of Acts that the numbers keep being mentioned. It's a little thing you'll pick up as, as, you, we, as you work through Acts. This is going to be a pattern that Luke will show just how Jesus is building his church. Notice that Jesus, um, Luke, try again, how Peter calls them brothers. He doesn't um, pull, pull authority. He doesn't put himself on a pedestal. He just is not superior. He realises they are equal with each other. But then he gets to the issue. And the issue is the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand. So there's a foundation that this little group has that we want to get here. That's, you don't necessarily see it on the surface, but it is a very solid foundation. What is it? It's knowing that God is serious about his word, that every word of God proves true. It's a deep foundation to have. That they, and if they didn't have that, they'd be in trouble. But this group, Peter could get up and say those things, and none of them said, I, you know, I object. They obviously all were on the same page. They knew that and, and could agree with him that God is absolutely true to his word. Now, we're going to look at that foundation a little bit more later, just for our own, um, our own help. But back to the issue at hand. Peter says, look, there's a problem. We've got one apostle missing, which would have been evident if you counted the first 11. You know, it's almost implied in, in reading off that list. He then mentions some of the, uh, the privilege that uh, it is for um, somebody to be among that, that particular group. They were given by Jesus. They were allotted a share in the ministry. And so Peter argues the case and he argues it from the scriptures in order that the scriptures must be fulfilled. That's his argument in a nutshell. Now, uh, this, this raises a question. Peter argues the scriptural imperative, but, but not the theological reason behind it. Do you see what I'm saying? We could have said, well, what's, what's the big deal? You know, the, why isn't 11 near, near enough for Melbourne? You know, the kind of um, just one missing can't be that big a deal, surely. And besides, Matthias, if you read the rest of Acts, he doesn't get mentioned for the rest of the time. So what special deal did he, you know, was, what, what's, what's the idea? What's behind God's desire? Because that's where it comes from, because he's the one who prophesied it. What's behind this thinking of it has to be 12. Well, I think the answer comes back to the question of why did Jesus choose? Let's just think about this for a bit. Why does God want 12? Why did Jesus choose 12? That's what it comes back to. Jesus chose 12 for a reason. 
And that reason was that, you, you know, that they had 12 tribes in the Old Testament. Jesus is starting anew with a, a new Israel. He's moving on from the old, from the national Israel, the withered fig tree that didn't produce any fruit, to the new Israel. One that incorporates both the elect from the Old Testament period, they'll become part of the true Israel, and the new Israel people grafted into the, into the olive vine. Um, there's a lot of associated teaching with the um, with uh, and it took me I didn't understand it for quite a while because did you we're, we're children of Abraham aren't we? How does that work? Well, in Galatians three, um, Paul argues that um, we are uh, Abraham's offspring. We are that we are Israel, and in Philippians three, verse three, we are the true circumcision. So what God and what the Lord Jesus is doing here, he's beginning a new Israel, a New Testament church that is part of the fulfillment to the promise to Abraham that all his descendants will be a great multitude. So that, that's the, um, some of us think, well, Lord, what did you do it that particular way? Well, it's, that's the theology that, as far as I understand, from, that's behind it. So, anyway, Peter doesn't emphasise the, the, that side of it. He mentions that the, the main point is that Scripture needs to be fulfilled. And at this stage, uh, Luke provides a little bit more detail about uh, Judas Iscariot, um, how the Lord's justice caught up with him. And we've got two accounts about, um, about Judas, haven't we? One from Matthew 27 and this one here. And all of us have, we have a little truth tester in here. Everything we hear, um, we think, oh, is that true? You know, that doesn't seem to match. And what we instantly do is say, well, Matthew 27 doesn't seem to match with what's happening in, in, our, uh, in Acts 1 here. Well, <clears throat> some, the two can be dovetailed together. Let me just make a brief explanation. Um, because in, in, in um, Acts here, it says that um, Judas bought the field. Well, actually, it was the chief priests back from Matthew 27 that had the money that, Jesus, that Judas had thrown into the temple. And um, so they took that money and they said, well, what do we do with this? We can't, you know, got to keep the rules. We can't um, just put it into the common amount. We'll have to spend them. Oh, let's buy that field and we'll use it for a burial place. So that's... Um, how the blood money was used. So from their point of view, that land was um, bought with blood money. Now, um, Judas went and hung himself from Matthew 27. And uh, you can imagine him hanging and the rope breaking and him, after being there for some time, starting to rot and swell up with the gases and so on, and then collapsing the ground, pretty gory stuff, and him exploding as a result and landing on the ground. And so his blood everywhere. So in one sense, you can see the field of blood is a field of blood for two reasons. It was bought with blood money and it resulted in the 
the consequence, the blood money, the, the, his own blood, um, the consequence of betraying Jesus, his blood spattered on the very same ground. So um, it's, um, that's the, the, uh, the various commentators have, have, uh, have all argued that as far as I could, could see. So um, as we do our little truth test, because that's what we do, um, that holds together perfectly well. But Peter's main point and is, is, is that the scriptural basis for um, replacing and uh, filling this gap is that scripture has to be fulfilled and we need to do a bit of it, says Peter. It must happen. And he quotes from two passages. And both of these passages are, um, uh, are the, kind of the cries for justice type ones. We've had from Psalm 69 this morning where... Um, and uh, verse 25 is what is quoted here um, in, uh, in Acts 1. For it is written in the book of Psalms, first part, may his camp become desolate and let no one dwell in it. That's Psalm 69 verse 25. And the second part, also from a, a psalm of crying for justice, is Psalm 109 verse 8. Now, Peter had been around Jesus for quite a while, hadn't he? And he'd learned how Jesus handled scripture. So he could see that he could take these two Psalms and show that this scripture had to be fulfilled. So now we move on to verse 21 to 26. And we see that in, uh, in this passage, I'll just read it. So one of the men who uh, had accompanied us so one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men really ought to, no, no, must become with us a witness to his resurrection. We've got to fulfill scripture. You'll see there the apostolic requirements. The duration has got to be from the beginning, from his baptism, right through to just the other day when we saw him ascend. That full time, for somebody to qualify from amongst us, that's what they've got to do. And they found two, didn't they? And what did they do with the, with the two? Well, they then decided, well, we've got to choose between these two. Um, they're both qualified. They're both good choices. However, Jesus is the one who chose the first 12 disciples and Jesus is the one who's going to choose this next one. Who has Jesus already chosen? And so what do they do? They cast lots. You, you ever tried that as a method for uh, making decisions? Any nods? No? No, I, you have? Oh, good on you. It's okay. Um, you'll find that it's not mentioned again in, uh, in Acts or uh, elsewhere in the New Testament as a method of decision-making. Um, you will find it, however, in Luke chapter 1. That's the first chapter of Luke. And how, remember Zacchaeus, um, he had to go into the temple and he was chosen from among the priests by lot. That was the normal type of practice. So it wasn't unusual for them to choose between perfectly equal in their view, options, um, but clearly 
just as it was for Zacchaeus to be in that temple back in Luke 1, he needed to be there because he needed to see the angel who was going to tell him that he was going to be a dad and then he didn't believe it and so he couldn't talk for nine months. But he, he was chosen by lot back then. It was God's will. And once again, we see the, uh, the same principle applied here in Acts 1. Jesus has chosen Matthias. Now, it's, um, you see, it's, it's just necessary that scripture has got to be fulfilled. It's the way it is. It's the way God operates. He fulfills his word. As I said, the, to start off with, uh, during the week, I was reading Psalm 130, verse 5, considering our current situation. I wait for the Lord, my soul waits. And in his word, I hope. You and I trust God. We trust in the Lord Jesus on the basis of what he has said. Now, the other lady that I uh, had a bit to do with is my wife's mother. Dot, she's passed on now. They weren't believers either. And uh, as I, I had opportunity, we actually looked after them for quite a while. And we went and lived with them. Um, I would drive over to uh, Blue Hills and uh, Lynn and I would do this team tag going back and forth. And so one of us was always having to be there. And during the time of being there, um, you're obviously going to get some time to talk about real things. So I said to her, Jesus promised us eternal life. You know, it says in the Bible. You know what she instantly said? Men wrote that. Isn't that interesting? Men wrote that. Well, it's true. Peter himself acknowledged um, by the, you know, by the mouth of David. But who actually gave us the word? God did. The Holy Spirit. All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching. But it's all it's all God breathed. We kind of sometimes we can treat his word a little bit lightly. We don't give it the, the, the strength that it requires. It's different to a newspaper. A newspaper has a lot of writers, so does the Bible, but this one was God breathed. We can trust it and we trust God on the basis of it. So men wrote it, certainly, but yes, and that's why the enemy will test you and he will test me he will say did god say how are you going to answer that what foundations have you got to help you know that god's word is absolutely true to be relied on and you know not just for the past but for your future and mine our eternal future depends on god keeping his word you see it must be fulfilled jesus will come again that has to happen. But a very interesting thing God does, and it's a pattern he's always done, is he's given us a particular method of helping us to know how to pick his word from others. And I, I hope you find this really helpful. Um, you might see one of those. You know, that's a, an Australian passport. And inside, you get 
all sorts of fancy things. You get a special photo. Oh, I don't. I was younger then, um, but it has all sorts of other marks on it and proofs so that they can test it to see if it's a genuine article, don't they? The genuine article, and they can put it under lamps, and they <clears throat> they know how to test if it's the real thing or not. Do you know God has given us exactly one such test? What is that test? What's the test? that God's given us for his word so that we know with an absolute, absolute, you know, objective certainty that, yes, it is true. I can bank my life on it. You know what it is? It's actually in our text. It is the distinguishing mark of scripture, what only God can do. The special identifier, and the answer is only God can tell the future. One hundred percent right. Whether it's about Judas, whether it's about how Jesus is going to die, whether what they're going to do with Jesus' clothes, what they're going to do, whether they're going to, whether any of his bones are going to be broken, whether he's going to be stabbed, um, and and so it goes on. God's given us this mark, just like in, in a passport. The mark on his word is every word of God proves true because only God can tell the future. Um, it's the distinguishing mark. And you'll see that from the, uh, the last chapter Luke wrote back in Luke, in his first book, in his first letter. Let me just read you um, Luke 24. And first of all, he's talking to these two on the road to Emmaus. And he, uh, he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. That's the way God operates. He says something's going to happen, and you wait, and it happens. Bingo. And uh, how many times did he fail? He, he never failed once, not once. But then he, um, so he said that to the two on the road to Emmaus. Then he says to uh, his disciples, he appears to them once again in Luke, last chapter of Luke. Um, he said to his disciples, said to them, these are my words which I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets must be fulfilled. I'm going to finish with uh, this little question. Is this just a New Testament phenomenon? Does God present this way of proving his word is absolutely true in, in the Old Testament at all? Well, let me tell you, he does it in a very powerful way in Isaiah. Now, you know, I'm sure you know Isaiah 53, how he 12 times God says it's him for us, him for us. He's going to be, bear our sins. Gives the full details about how Jesus is going to suffer, um, all, that he, and, not only, and he's going to die, that it was the will of the Lord to crush him, but then he's going to raise him. 
because he, he's going to be able to see his offspring and prolong his days. And the will of the Lord's going to prosper in his hand. We see the resurrection all in Isaiah 53. But God has a little warm-up in the 10 previous chapters from 41 to 48. And 12 times in that section, he says he's got a little argument with, with the, uh, the idols of the day. Because you see, he knows his people when Isaiah wrote, he wrote before they were going to go off into exile. He knew that the exiles were going to get to, uh, to Babylon and say, hey, maybe these uh, wooden idols, these cast idols, are the real deal. Yahweh looks like he's failed. Maybe they're the real gods. And so Isaiah, God knowing that that's going to come, says, okay, let's deal with this issue. And we're going to prove that I am God and I'm only going to use one thing. You know what his argument's going to be? Let me read any. I'll just read a couple of these, uh, if you permit me. He actually starts the, his case in Isaiah 41, 21 to 24. He says, submit your case, says the Lord. Present your argument, says Jacob's king. Let them come and tell us what will happen. Tell us the past events so that we may reflect on them and know their outcome. That is how you've done it in the past. Or tell us the future. Yes, tell us the coming events that we will know that you are gods, you little idle things. Indeed, do something, either good or bad. Then we'll be in awe. Uh, then we will be in awe and perceive that you're gods. He says, "Look, you are nothing. Your work is worthless. Anyone who chooses you, idols, is detestable." So this, that's his, just his number one. He does it another 11 times. That's Isaiah 41, 21, 24. I'll give you another taste. This is what the Lord, the King of Israel and his, his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts says. This is Isaiah 44, 6 to 9. I am the first and I am the last. There is no God but me. Who like me can announce the future? Isn't that lovely? God's really rubbing it in. You know, you guys can't do anything, but you certainly can't announce the future. Let him say so and make a case before me since I established an ancient people. Let these gods declare the coming things and what will take place. Then he's, he turns compassionately to his people and says, don't be startled or afraid. Haven't I told you and declared it long ago? And you are my witnesses, witnesses about what I've said beforehand that is now taking place. Is there any God but me? See, that's how we know we've got the real deal. And there's more, but I might read them all. Old Testament people, how do they know they had the real deal? God's word was true. Well, take even Abraham. You know what? God went walking with Abraham and said, this is what's going to happen. You're going to, your, your descendants are going to go down to Egypt. They're going to be there for 400 years. They're going to be slaves. God tells the future. That's how we know his word is true. That's how you know that on judgment day, when the Lord Jesus returns, we're going to be with him forever. Because he said so. So let's be encouraged. I know it's done a help to me. I kind of the way it's helped me is Tom, just get used to it. God is God. He's real. There's the evidence is absolutely overwhelming. And uh, regardless of how you feel, 
Yes, it's true. We have the living God. We have the Lord Jesus who loved us and gave himself for us. And he's coming again. Let me pray for us. Oh, loving Heavenly Father, thank you that you were so kind to us in giving this mark in your word of fulfilled scripture. Thank you that Peter saw that that was necessary for the replacement of Judas. And oh Lord, you just, it's your mark. You do it all the time. You did it when you came, Lord Jesus, and you told the disciples so, that what was going to happen to you, then it happened to the letter. We just praise you that you are God and that you give us such a solid foundation for our faith. Please help us to cling to you and to cling to your word um, and trust you through all the hard times and through the good times too. But thank you that we can trust you because you are a, a God of your word. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you.